in week two of a series called Three Little Words, where we're building on um, the concept, a simple but incredibly deep, of God is love. Now, again, you say, okay, we're going to talk about God's love. And, but I shared with you last week that that really becomes the starting point for the series that we're in on Sunday morning. Because all the stuff we're talking about, about being uh, moving from legendary to living a legacy really is rooted in those three things, in those three words. And if we're not careful, we simply walk away because they are um, words that we throw around real easily without really understanding the depth of what's there. And so we started last week and we talked about that a little bit. And we're going to continue talking about it tonight and uh, you know, the next couple of weeks. For me, um, today... Uh, I, was at the, I had to go to a uh, football practice. Kane was playing football, and so we had, there was a scrimmage today. Uh, I was over at Glen Ridge Middle School, so I was over there, and I'm um, sitting in that park there by Glen Ridge, and um, watching practice on this park bench, and then just kind of enjoying the afternoon. It was nice. It was fun. I'm watching the game, and you know, there's, there's different teams practicing out in the fields, which is great. So it's, it's very cool. And so this guy comes by, and he says, hey, can I share that bench with you? Sure. And so we sit there. His name is Kelly. Um, and, um, you know, I introduced myself. And so we were just kind of talking. And he you know, I said, you, you got a grandkid out here? <laughs> I'm like, no, you moron. No, I just say that. I don't, no. Um, but that's my kid out there. So we talked a little bit about that. And then came um, the question. Well, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I've told you guys many times I, I hate that question. Not because I don't like what I do for a living, just because it, it, it just takes you to interesting places. And so I said, well, it's complicated. What do you do for a living? And he builds boats. And so I'm like, well, tell me about that. So he's telling me about building boats. I said, hey, have you ever heard the uh, Jimmy Buffett, Alan Jackson song, Boats to Build? He goes, yeah, I like that song. So I like that song, too. I said, I heard that song this week. And so we talked about that for a minute. And then uh, we're watching the football games unfold, and he's watching this practice, and I'm watching the scrimmage over here. And he goes, now, what is it you do? <laughs> and so I said, well, I said, I, I, uh, I'm a transformational architect. Yeah, I've never heard of one of those. <laughs> I said, well, I, I research ancient books and manuscripts, and I go back in history and look at the original languages. Well, what books? I said, well, for the most part, I usually focus on 66 <laughs> books that I really work in a lot. And he said, well, what happens when you're done? I said, well, I report back um, the discoveries. Um, and I have to put them into a presentation format, and I report all my discoveries to a group of people in person or online or on social media um, every week where I give them the kind of the cultural setting, the, the impact of what's going on, uh, the importance of it, and then specifically you know, how it applies to their daily life so they can learn from history so they can maximize the capacity for living the life that they were created to live. And he goes, he said, and so we kind of take a deep breath and we sit there for a minute and he goes, uh, well, you, 
I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that does that for a living. <laughs> and see, and this is the moment where God stretches me. Because I could have just said, well, now you have. And this really kind of ends the conversation, which is what I really wanted to do. But then I had a moment. I said, well, have you ever talked to a preacher before? And he goes, it's been a long time. Well, I didn't say anything else. Just let that sit. He goes, oh, wait a minute. That's what you do. (laughs) And I said, yeah. And I was hoping that at that point, we were done. Uh, he apologized for some of the language he'd been using earlier, which is always interesting. Uh, and then he goes, I, I got a question for you, preacher. I'm like, this is the moment, see, I was trying to avoid. And he goes, I, I, got, I got questions. I said, about God? He said, yeah. I said, well, before we start, I said, do you believe in God? He goes, why? I said, don't take me wrong, but if you don't believe in God, what exactly are we getting ready to talk about? He said, what do you mean? I said, because if my job is to convince you sitting on this bench that God exists, I'm going to lose. It's not going to happen because I'm not going to stay past the end of this practice. And I'm going to walk away. And so we'll never come up with an answer. So I said, if you don't believe in God, why do you want to ask me about God? I said, and it's okay with me if you don't believe in God. He goes, no, I believe in God. I said, okay. <laughs> so now I'm thinking, well, now, now, now I'm stuck in the conversation, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> so and I thought, see, this is the point where God has a wicked sense of humor. Because at this point, I've done my best to avoid any kind of meaningful conversation with this guy. <laughs> Because what I really want to do is watch a football scrimmage. So he says, well, he goes, you know what? I, I, got a, uh, I just got some problems with God. I said, well, I said, you know, I said, trust me when I tell you this, you're not the only one. <laughs> a lot of people I know have problems with God. He said, well, here's what I want to know. I said, okay. He said, why does a good and loving God let bad things happen to good people? So I sat there for a minute, and I let, there, let it sit for another minute. He said, did you hear me? I said, huh? Uh, and, and he repeated the question again. I said, oh, I heard you. I just wanted to hear if you say it the same way twice. And um, I said, well, can I ask you another question before I answer your question? And he goes, I guess. I said, okay. Well, here's my question. Uh, are you a good person? And he said, well, I try to be. I said, that's not what I asked. I said, are you a good person? I said, because to be honest with you, you've been using some language that, you know, in my book, not so good. As a matter of fact, if my son were here and you were saying that, I would call you down on that and just tell you to quit talking that way. I said, so let me ask you again. Are you a good person? 
He goes, well, I apologize for the language. I said, well, I said, I don't personally don't care about the language. I said, I'm just asking a question. You want a question? You've asked me a question. I'm going to give you an answer. But I said, are you a good person? He goes, well, not as good as I want to be. I said, fair enough. I said, either am I, by the way. I said, uh, so here's my question to you. How does a good and loving God still love bad people? He said, what? I said, I said, well, it's a big deal to you that a good and loving God will let bad things happen. So by the same line of thinking, why would a good and loving God do anything good for bad people? He goes, well. <laughs> and then the music started. <laughs> yes. <and> so we, <laughs> Yes, he, he broke into a river dance. And, uh, uh, um, you know, and he said, he goes, I, I, I never thought about that. I said, well, I said, you know, I said, don't, I said, don't, I said, again, don't. I said, obviously there's some pain in your life. And I said, I appreciate that. I said, but, you know, we always want to be a one-way street, don't we? We always make God the bad guy. I said, but sadly, from what you just said and what I just admitted to you, God's the only good guy in the story. And yet here we sit on a park bench debating the goodness of God. And he just kind of got real quiet. Looked out, we watched the football game, we kind of nodded back and forth. And I said, and here's what I know. God doesn't do anything bad. He does a lot I don't understand. But he didn't do anything bad. And um, he sat there for a minute. And I finally said, you have a sick kid? He goes, how'd you know that? I said, I didn't. It's just a guess, usually. Most of the time when this question gets asked, it's because somebody's died or you got a sick kid. He goes, really? I said, 99% of the time. I said, you're not the first one. You won't be the last. And he goes, yeah. He goes, it's been tough. And I said, well, I said, let me ask you another question. I said, if you believe in God, and you said you did, and if you don't have an answer of why a good God would do good things for bad people, and you don't have an answer for that, do you? He said, no. I said, so let me suggest to you something that maybe you never thought of. That maybe God loves your kid more than you ever could. And he's in more control than you think he is. Because you don't have the ability to love your kid as much as God does. Because God's that good. I never thought about that either. I said, you know, funny man, I said, I'm teaching on the love of God tonight. I said, and we talk a lot about loving God and how good God is, but we don't really know very much about that. I said, no, I said, you know, I said, and I don't know your background, I said, but at the end of the day, I said, I can tell you that Christians and followers don't know as much about it as we think we do. I mean, we, we, we kind of get out in the, in the kiddie pool and we paddle around a little bit and we splash and we think that's cool and fun, but we really don't. Think about the depths of what we're talking about. And I said, so I was really sorry about your kid. And, and so we, we, we exchanged some information. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, he said, well, he, <laughs> we kind of left the conversation. He goes, you have been extremely enlightening for me today. I said, okay. I said, and you have... Um, 
been my park bench conversation of the day. <laughs> and he goes, uh, he goes, well, he goes, I, I'm, glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad I sat down here next to you. I said, I'm, I'm glad you're glad. Um, and, and so, but, but there is something about us in our, in our, our, our trying to figure God out sometimes that there is a, we tend to think that, that if we're successful and things are going well, that God has blessed us more or loves us more. And sometimes we take in our life an indicator that, well, if it's not going well and I'm not getting the breaks that I think I should, we somehow we equate that to failure and thinking that maybe God doesn't love us as much. We are always trying to balance this, the books like this. And there's nothing about God that ever does that. I mean, you know, if you're a follower and you're a child of God and you're obedient, we find out in Scripture that He blesses us. He blesses us more than we deserve. He always has. He always will. That seems to be the nature of God, and that's great. And He's blessed us enough. If He doesn't bless us anymore, does He have to do anything else for you? Probably not. But God seems to bless. Um, but, you know, that has nothing to do with the breaks that you get or don't get. And we talked before on Sundays that God doesn't really broker in luck. You know, that's not, that's not God's arena either. He'd rather have God said, don't, you know, don't even believe in luck. Yep, told you. Uh, don't believe in luck. Um, and, and, and so as we're, as we're thinking about that, we're talking about that, it, it's tough because we come to this moment where we have to come to grips with the fact that does, do we understand um, what it really means when we say God is love? Because to understand what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, if you're going to take life and recognize that whatever happens to you because of the relationship you have with God, then everything that's going to happen now after that event, whatever it is, the 90% of it, really, that's going to determine what that event means in your life. That's what gives it the meaning. That's what gives it the legacy, if you will. That's what's going to change the direction, trajectory of your life forever. That's how big this is. If you don't know the love of God well enough, you will react wrong the bulk of the time. You'll ask the wrong questions. And again, my friend on the park bench, and I use a friend word friend used loosely. I'd invite him to watch in the days ahead. We'll see if he does. I told him I would probably tell the story. Um, you know, it, it, he asked the wrong question. Um, one of the things he did say in our kind of our little debrief at the end, he goes, he goes, he, goes, he said, I can't believe you were telling me I was asking the wrong question. And I said, yeah. And he goes, because I've really had that question burning for a long, long time. And I said, well, I said, I could tell you it was a colossal waste of time. <laughs> um, and he said, well, I said, but you did ask. I said, I just gave you a better question, didn't I? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, because when you can answer the question I ask you, then you have the answer to the one you asked me. And so we, you know, we, we left it, and, I mean, and, and it, was a, it was a nice conversation about the love of God. It, you know, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have a track on me, so I couldn't hit him with a track. I couldn't, you know, I mean, there was, you know, we, we got to the point where we needed to end it. And we did, and we'll see what happens in the days ahead. Um, but for us to understand the bigness of what we're talking about. It really doesn't matter. Something's going to attack us up here. It's a pterodactyl. All right. Um, I know. 
So the moral of the story is I'm glad football season is about over. Um, <laughs> oh, I have to change benches. We're going to Luke 7 tonight to a very familiar story for a few minutes, but we're going to go to other places if we have time. And if not, we'll get there next week. It's a story I've used with you before. Uh, it, it's one, to me, it is one of those stories that the more you mine it, the richer it becomes. Um, but basically, it's a story about people, two people, really, who couldn't be more different. Uh, one is looked up on, one is looked down upon. One is a church leader, the other is a streetwalker. Um, one makes a living promoting standards, the other makes a living breaking down standards. He's hosting a party, she crashes the party. The party's in Capernaum. Um, and if you were to ask anybody in town to pick out the more spiritual or pious of the two, they would pick the man named Simon, who's in the story. Luke 7. After all, he's a student of theology, a man of the cloth. Anybody would pick him. Um, and Jesus knew them both. But if Jesus were to tell you who's more spiritual, he wouldn't pick Simon. He'd pick the woman. Which, of course, is the twist to the story. And so, not that Simon wants to know. I mean, as the story starts to unfold, his mind is elsewhere. His, his, his concern is that there's a woman that is in his house that's not supposed to be there. Uh, I have a feeling at this point Simon is, one, irritated she's crashed the party, two, irritated she's hanging around Jesus, and three, trying to figure out who he's going to fire for letting her in. But she doesn't belong there. Okay? Um, this would be the equivalent of someone walking in in a bathing suit into a seminary class in front of a seminary professor uh, in the middle of a class to wish him happy birthday. She doesn't belong there. That's a whole different story I could tell you another time. Um, but at the end of the day, she doesn't fit. Um, and Simon is angry. But one of the lessons that he learns that day, and one of the lessons that we have to learn that day, is you don't think thoughts that you don't want Jesus to hear. <laughs> because, see, Jesus does what Jesus does. And it's wildly irritating. He knows what you're thinking. And so take your Bibles and look at Luke 7. I want to read you verses 40 through 47. I'm going to read out the New Living Translation, which is why I'll read it. Um, it'll sound maybe a little bit different, but you'll get the idea. You'll follow along. It says, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, that's just Jesus speaking, I have something to say to you. All right, teacher. Uh, Simon said, go ahead. And Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither one of them could repay him, so he gladly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again from the time I came in. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. And it moves me to a question that we've got to, we have to ask if we're going to talk about this idea that God is love. And it's simply this, how much of Jesus do you really want? 
See, and as a follower, you say, well, that's a silly question. And it's not a silly question at all. Because how many followers have you met? Nobody in this room, I know. That basically have come to Jesus to make sure their salvation was taken care of, but haven't done anything about trying to grow or follow or live the abundant life that he's called them to, haven't changed, and trying to be a better disciple, they're not trying to grow. What they needed is they needed that little bit of Jesus that they could have that so they felt like they could get into heaven, but after that, they don't really care about the growth part or anything else that's there. It's a fair question. If God is love, how much of Jesus do you really want? And the answer is not an easy answer, by the way. Because most of us have spent a great deal of our lives trying to form God and fashion God into our own image. God creates us in his image, and then we try to make God fit our image. And we try to make God what we want God to be. And we don't understand sometimes that when we're busy doing that, we find ourselves in a situation where all of a sudden, man, it, the spiritual thing's not working like we want it to. And we get really frustrated by that because God's not doing what God is supposed to do according to us. And so again, the question, how much of Jesus do we really want? See, Jesus, Simon invites Jesus to his house, but he treats him like an unwanted step-uncle. I mean, he, he, no customary courtesies, no kiss of greeting, no washing his feet, no oil of his head, and Jesus calls him out on that. Um, or in modern terms, no one opened the door for him, no one took his coat, no one shook his hand. I mean, Count Dracula has better manners. I, it, and so Simon does nothing to make Jesus feel welcome in his home at the party. And yet I promise you that Jesus is the center of attention. So for Simon, it's a party and Jesus is there. He's great decoration. Again, how much of Jesus do you want? Because if you really believe that God is love, then Jesus has to become more than just a decoration in your life. He's got to become more than just, he's my salvation ticket. He is going to be Lord of all in your life, or he's not Lord at all in your life. And we all struggle with that. And the reason that we struggle with it is because we either love him or we don't. You say, well, that's harsh. I know it's harsh, but it's the truth. If you love him, it changes us. If you love what he does for you, that doesn't change you. And I'm going to make a harsh statement, but it's true, I believe. Most people love Jesus for what he does for them. They love what he does for them. They don't really love him. Seth? Anybody write it down? That's not my notes. Um, did you get that? Did I say that we love, we love Jesus, we love what he does for us, we don't love him. Is that what I said? Okay. <laughs> don't expect me to know it twice. I mean, this is twice. This is, this is the, the problem between 9 and 11.15, right? What happens at 9 doesn't happen at 11.15 on a Sunday morning. It's two entirely different sermons. like... So it's like each week we have a guest speaker at 11.15. It's not the guy that was here at 9. Um, sorry. Um, I'll try to pay better attention next time. Um, 
the woman that shows up does everything that Simon didn't. We don't know her name. Uh, we know she's a sinner. It's been debated. Realistically, most default to the fact that she's a prostitute. Eh. Uh, and, and, but no matter what, she is a sinner. And Jesus uses the phrase, her sins are many, <laughs> to describe her. And, and, and that's fine. But she does not have an invitation to the party. She has no standing in the community. Um, but recognize what's happening in the story. People's opinion of her don't stop her from showing up. Okay? She's not coming for them. She's showing up because Jesus is there. And where Jesus is, that's where she's decided she has to be. So every move she makes is measured and meaningful. Each gesture, extravagant. When she puts her cheek on his feet that are still dusty from the path, she doesn't have water. So what does she have? She has tears. She doesn't have uh, anything uh, to anoint him with. So she uses the perfume that she brought for that purpose. No one gave her a towel. So what does she got? She uses her hair. And so here's someone who comes to Jesus in a very real, vivid, and almost, almost embarrassing kind of way, if you think about it. Uses what she has to worship Jesus. That's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. I mean, she doesn't have what the other people in the room have. She doesn't have the stuff. She doesn't have the standing. She doesn't have anything. She didn't even get an invite. But yet there she is doing what she can do because that's all she can do to worship Jesus. Um, one translation verse in the message, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase. So don't, don't, don't say, don't, don't think it's a translation. But it says it so well. It's, it reads, she rained tears on his feet. How cool is that? I mean, she opens up the perfume, her only possession of worth, massages it into his skin. The aroma is as inescapable as the irony of the moment. I mean, it fills the room with a smell. You'd think that Simon, of all people, would know that she's showing him his love. I mean, he is the resident student of Scripture. Um, but he's harsh. He's standoffish. He doesn't want her there. She's the town hussy. And yet she doesn't want to be anywhere else except close to Jesus. Um, the difference in the two, training, education, money. Simon would win all of those categories, right? There's only one area in which the woman leaves Simon eating dust. She's made one discovery that Simon obviously hasn't, um, and that's simply God's love. And so the second thing I want you to see is not only ask the question, how much of Jesus do you want, but also to understand that you have to realize first that you need it so then you can accept it. Because you never accept it if you don't need it. You don't take something that you don't need. If you don't see the value in it to begin with, why would you take it? Simon did not see the value in God's love. And so here's Messiah sitting in his house, and he's irritated because someone's worshiping. 
yet we have a woman who has come in, and she has experienced God's love. And, you know, we don't know her story. We don't know when she received it. And I wish we did. When you get to heaven, you can ask her. Um, we aren't told about how she heard about it. I mean, did she hear Jesus say in Luke chapter 6 that your father is merciful? Um, was she nearby, maybe, when Jesus stopped the funeral procession out of Nain and he gave the mom back her dead son? I mean, maybe she was a part of that group. Maybe she was there, a part of that crowd. Maybe she was there on the perimeter of that. Um, did someone tell her how Jesus touched lepers? Did someone explain to her that Jesus recruited tax collectors to come be a part of his inner circle? And maybe she thought to herself, I, I, could, I could be that. We don't know any of that, but we do know this. She came wanting and needing to accept the love of Christ. She recognized in her life she had a need for the love of God. And so she came to the source, and she brought the best that she had to worship him in that moment. I think one of the struggles that we have as followers sometimes is we don't get that serious about God. Because our lives fit in pretty good compartments, right? And we, we find ourselves, we, we, we compartmentalize pretty well what we think we know, what we think we have, how it works, how it fits. And, and God works, and usually, and I will say this, I mean, and I don't understand why exactly, but usually God works into our formula pretty well. And most of us kind of plow through life and we don't think about it until you meet a guy on a park bench who's lost someone he loves. He's got questions about God. Or you find someone who really is desperate and their only way out, the only way out that they can see is Jesus. And they discover they have a Savior who loves them. See, it's not until you realize that you need Him that you can accept and allow that love to change you. Uh, and that's what happens in, in the woman's life. And so she comes for lack of a better term, thirsty. I mean, she, she's just, she is just dry. And she needs what Jesus will say is living water, basically. And when he gives her the opportunity, she doesn't just take a sip. Takes a bath in it. I mean, she drinks and she fills and it runs down her neck. And I mean, she, she, she drinks till her soul gets soft. And she's ready to receive all that he has for her. And um, Simon doesn't, because Simon doesn't know that he needs it. Simon doesn't need grace. He'd rather analyze it. People like Simon don't request mercy. They debate it. They prorate it. Um, and, and hear me carefully. It wasn't that Simon couldn't be forgiven. He just never asked. Which brings me back to the point I just made about understanding that God is love. You have to get to a point in your life where you know you need it before you can accept it. And then once you accept it, it will change you. Simon doesn't ask. And to me, that is the thing that screams on the page. Like, what is your deal, dude? Ask. Say, I want the same thing she has. But yet Simon could never do that. He could never bring himself to do that. Um, that would hurt his status in the community. That would hurt the way that he was seen by his religious friends. 
And so while she drinks it up, he puffs up. Um, at the end of the day, she is loved and she has love to give, and Simon does not. And here's the reason why. Um, we'll call it Love 747. Love 747. Verse 47 of chapter 7. A person who is forgiven little shows only little love. It's like a jumbo jet. It's like a 747, right? The love of God has some big wide wings and can lift your life to another level. Read it again. The person who's forgiven little shows only little love. In other words, you can't give what you haven't received. If you haven't let Jesus love you, and you haven't got to the point where you need it and you want it and you accept it, then you don't have a whole lot of love to share. Because we try to manufacture love by a sheer act of will. Because we know we're supposed to love. And so we decide that we can set our jaws and we can muscle through. Um, I need to forgive that person. I don't know how, but I'm going I'm to give it. And we do it with such joy. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's so much grace and mercy. Um, I don't care how much it hurts. I'm going to be nice to them. Uh, don't do them any favors. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. By golly, I will. Even if it kills me. Love's supposed to kill you. And so teeth clenched, jaw firm, we're going to love if it's going to, we're going to love if it kills us. And it might just, it might just do that. Um, and what I want to suggest to you, if you go back to what I just said about love 747, is we're missing a step. The first step of love is not toward them, it's toward him. Before you can love someone else, you've got to love Jesus and let Jesus love you. And we get that all cattywampus and backwards because we're always trying to love without going to the source of love. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, you give love by first receiving it. We love because he first loved us. How do you love? Because he first loved you. And so the flip side of that is true. If you don't know that he loved you, you can't love. Oh, you're going to come up with your cheap imitation of it. You're going to set your jaw and try to do it. It's going to try to probably kill you. You're going to do your best to love because we know in our culture we ought to love each other. But we're trying to do it without drawing from the source of love. You want to be more loving? Um, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. In other words, where's your model for love? It's in Jesus. Um, tough to put others first. Hard to make it work. And see, here's the deal. And I'm a preacher by nature or a transformational architect. <laughs> And we often, from the pulpit, the pulpit, or actually we use lecterns around here. We don't really have a pulpit. Um, but uh, we're guilty of skipping the first step. See, most preacher types will tell you, you got to love each other. Be patient, kind, forgiving. Uh, we instruct people to love without telling them um, that you got to be loved first. See, telling someone to love and forgetting to tell them that they have to be loved first is like telling someone to write a check without making a deposit in the account. Right? You're trying to draw on something that you don't have. You're trying to give something that you just don't have the resources to give. Um, 
you know, uh, I, I, I've married some of you in this room. You guys will remember. We've talked, and if you've been through that, that journey with me, one of the things we talk about is 1 Corinthians 13. And when I tell you about 1 Corinthians 13, I always remind you that that is a passage not about the way that we love each other, even though we'll probably use it in your ceremony because it sounds so good. But we'll use it because it's the model of love. And so what you have to do is you have to take that love 747 and understand that the secret to loving is living. The secret to loving is living loved. In other words, if you take that passage and you read it, 1 Corinthians 13, um, the heart of the chapter is verse 4 through 8. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it does not, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Man, it's awesome. And it sounds great in a wedding. Awesome. Because it is the greatest description of love that we probably have in all of Scripture. But it is talking about the love of God. Here's how I know. Let me change it for you a little bit. I'll put my name in there. Jeff is patient. <laughs> you can Jeff is kind. It does not. Jeff does not. Is not envious. He doesn't boast. He's not proud. He's not rude. He's not self-seeking. See, it turns God's word into a lie if I put my name in there, and I'm one of his kids. You can't put your name in here and make it work because you turn it into a lie. There's only one name that you can put into that passage that makes that passage work because that's the way the passage was written, and that's what you have to know. Here it is. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He's not proud. Jesus is not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. See, if we say God is love and we really do mean it, then we have a reserve to draw on in a model that shows us how to love. And in our, out of our imperfection, we're able to halfway get it right. But again, I go back to what I said. How much do we really want God's love? Because when you want it enough to let it change you, then everything becomes about every event, every circumstance, every moment of life, you will react differently because you know you're loved. And in those moments that we don't react in real godlike ways, we kind of forget that we're loved. We forget what he's done for us. And it robs us of the joy of living out that legacy that we're called to live. Uh, but we're out of time, so we got to stop. So we'll pick up here next week. Let's, um, let's pray. Uh, you guys can go get your kids, and um, we'll, we'll jump in Sunday morning and um, talk about the contentment canteen. Let's pray. God, we are um, thankful that you love us. We're thankful for those moments that we get to take a close look at uh, who we are, and how we live, and how we walk. We're amazed, if we really think about it, because 
we can't even understand the depth of your love for us. But yet, those three words, God is love, changes everything. And because of those three words, we can be more, we can do more, and we can make the impact in the world around us that we need to make it. And, and, and we also will find that we make a difference in every arena that we step into, simply because it's you loving through us. Uh, teach us that, remind us of that, not just tonight, but every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.